This is a crowd podcast. Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a broadcaster and fertility coach, and I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. We'll be your trusted guides, chatting each week with experts and people just like you to let you know you're not alone. Let's dive in. Welcome to another episode of the Fertility Podcast. Before we start, I do want to just put a trigger warning in place because we are going to be talking about miscarriage. So please, if this isn't where your head's at, I mean, the title will have been clear, but we are going to be just talking more about um, issues around miscarriage and loss. So we totally understand if it's not where you want to listen to right now. And we'll see on the next episode. But if you are going to stay and hear what we've got to say, Kate and I just had a massive minor mishap as we were (laughs) getting ready to hit record. And I clicked refresh and all our notes disappeared so so we're winging it <laughs> sorry we're winging it um how's your week been um, my week has been nice I'm a bit confused with the whole not the bank holiday yeah. I, I'm completely a day ahead of myself totally. but yeah no good week and I had a lovely surprise while actually we were chatting <laughs> I opened two lovely boxes that came through the post from you as a little cheer me up a lovely mug, which I'm going to be sporting for our um, Brew at Two on live on Instagram on Thursdays, and a lovely sweatshirt. So thank you very much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, we like to do little surprises to cheer each other up. Yeah, we do. How was your week? Yeah, good. Busy. Lots of podcast chats going on. I've got a, another podcast that out that I um, I share, which um, you can see on my stories, which is all about your health that's what we want to make mm-hmm. sure we're always looking after you and I was also a bit confused with the days I missed some meetings all sorts of things went a bit AWOL <laughs> with that long weekend but we've got another one in May which we can look forward to yes now in this episode and Kate and I aren't going to talk for too long because we want to cover quite a bit as I said at the start we are talking about miscarriage and we previously shared a series talking about miscarriage and since that series There's been some really interesting developments, particularly in the UK and also around the world. First up, we have had the amazing announcement from uh, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, the prime minister, that women and their partners are going to be entitled to three days of paid leave following a miscarriage or a stillbirth, which... That's amazing, isn't it? Amazing. And when we were just checking, fact-checking this, New Zealand is the second country in the world to do so. So we looked to see where the first country was. And we were quite surprised, weren't we? Yeah, it was, it's India. And I would never have thought that. And I, I just wonder whether they have quite a high incidence of miscarriage. And maybe yeah. that's, that's why. But Possibly. yeah, fascinating. And hopefully it will encourage more countries to, to have the conversation around miscarriage on their agenda, which we've seen definitely changing because since we last talked about this on the podcast, Tommy's have shared their findings they've had a petition running and we're talking in may it was in april that their findings came out from a big survey looking into the whole issue that we have in the uk that that women don't really get investigated further until they've had three losses um mm. and there was some really fascinating kind of and shocking stats that had come out of of their findings wasn't there mm, there really was it um, it's it's such an area that i think we still need to do so much research into, but the information that's coming out from all the current research is 
is enlightening. And I, you know, come on Britain, because we absolutely need to be following suit with New Zealand and supporting women and their partners when they're going through this loss more than a much better way than we do currently. Because the biggest, one of the biggest things was the huge link between depression. And um, it's something that we've talked about in more detail in the series that we shared previously about miscarriage, which like I say, we will put a link to in the show notes because what we're going to share in this episode, first of all, is, is a little bit of a conversation we had with Dr. Ingrid Gran, where we asked her about why miscarriage happened. Have a listen to um, some of the, the points that Ingrid raises. And like I say, that episode will be in the show notes because we just wanted to give you like an overview of some of the areas that are cited as being the reason miscarriage happens. I think that it's one of the most common questions I get asked, Ingrid, and I'm sure you do in every day of your life as well, is that why do miscarriage happen? Because we know there's so many different reasons, um, but it's really frustrating for women not to be able to have an answer. And I know that you're doing an awful lot of research at the moment into this. So we're just really interested to find out a bit more about that and also for your, to, to give your, your opinion on why the majority of miscarriages might occur. So, so we know increasingly more about why miscarriages might happen, but I think it's really hard for the patient in front of you to say, in very many cases, this is the reason this miscarriage happened. Um, the thing we know is the most common cause of miscarriage is that the pregnancy itself, that the pregnancy tissue doesn't have the right genetics. So each of our cells in our bodies made up of 23 pairs of chromosomes that carry the genetic material um, for all of our cells. And we get 23 of those from an egg and 23 of those from a sperm. And what we know in those very early stages of cell division as the egg's fertilised, commonly you get genetic mistakes that mean that a pregnancy just can't develop normally. So we hear about pregnancies um, with Down syndrome where you get an extra chromosome 21 and lots of those pregnancies do continue. But the vast majority of cases when uh, it's another chromosome, the pregnancy just can't go beyond those first few weeks. And if you look at pregnancy tissue from miscarriage, particularly in sporadic miscarriage, and that I mean by a first miscarriage, for example, at least in half of those cases, you'll find that there's a chromosome problem that meant that this baby could never make it to a healthy term pregnancy. But there's a whole load of other stuff in there, so it's not just that. Um, We know that uh, the issue around chromosomes is really quite heavily related to female age, um, and that's the bit that sadly none of us can change. But we know that as you get older, miscarriage is much, much more common, and I think that's one thing that's really, really hard for women to face, that there's a thing that you can't necessarily do something about. Um, We know that if you're... Um, in your 20s, somewhere between 25, 29, you've got about a one in 10 chance of any individual pregnancy resulting in a miscarriage. Um, but that changes really rapidly as you get older. So that by the time a, lay, a woman's 45, it's actually about one in two pregnancies will end. Uh, uh, and, you know, that's something that I think is often not commonly out there as a fact, because if we all see the Cherie Blairs or the, you know, the famous people who have their babies much later in life um and what of course for the most part and i'm sure you've already discovered this in talking to people is that people don't tell the stories um uh, when it's not gone that way that's a big part of it but it's not the only part of it by any sense of the word there's all sorts of other reasons why miscarriage may happen 
Um, sometimes it can be other medical conditions may increase the risk of miscarriage. So if you had diabetes, for example, that wasn't controlled well, or thyroid problems that weren't controlled well, they can be associated with miscarriage. Um, we know that things like increasing weight seem to be associated with miscarriage. We don't quite know all the reasons why. Um, we've just done some really interesting genetic work that's just um, awaiting publication at the moment, um, looking at screening of thousands and thousands of women who've had miscarriage to try and understand what genetic factors may be behind it. And clearly that there are some genetic factors um, that may predispose some individuals to miscarriage and not others. Um, so there's all sorts of factors. And then often when we're talking about miscarriage research, we describe this big black box, which is the lining of the womb or the endometrium, the bit that's really hard to see um, when uh, a pregnancy loss occurs. What are the factors in that lining of the womb that, that may be associated with my, why a miscarriage happened? And it may be hormonal. There's some evidence for immune factors that are related to miscarriage. And all of these things may be relevant for any individual pregnancy loss. Um, and some of them more relevant, I guess, to women who've had suffered multiple pregnancy losses. And, and then it seems that the causes are somewhat different from the causes when someone might have had one pregnancy loss, although clearly there's some overlap um, and absolutely age is a factor in all of those, uh, those women very frequently. I noticed that there wasn't any mention of male factor with what you were just saying. So no, it's, there is clearly evidence of male factors. And again, age is the biggest factor, but it's not quite to the same degree as female age. So um, we used to think that, that, that male factors weren't involved at all. There's increasing evidence that, that, that the age of a man does bear um, some influence on the chance of miscarriage, but not to such a greater degree. Um, certainly in recurrent pregnancy loss, uh, there's also evidence that um, DNA damage to the sperm may be associated with recurrent pregnancy loss. One of the really tricky things I always think in many of these um, investigations and research studies we all do is that we find stuff that's associated with pregnancy loss, but not necessarily the thing that can therefore go on and treat it. And that's something that I think women find really frustrating. So you can say, yep, this, this might be in there, but... Um, in my view, we've got very few things that we've got good evidence for to say, do you know what, we treat you with this and it's going to make all the difference. So some really interesting points there about age, wasn't there? Yeah, really interesting. I mean, it's shocking, isn't it, when you think that it was from in your 20s, you've got the one in 10 and then as you get to 45, it's one in two. Yeah. You know, that's a huge increase, isn't it? And as we know from the, the recent findings from the Tommy's research, that, that the male factor is a significant consideration as well. Yeah, there's more and more research coming out about this. And I think there's so much that we don't know yet, but hopefully we will get more information. And it certainly seems to be the DNA fragmentation of the sperm. And I think we now really do need to be pushing to, and women and couples need to be pushing to have that side of it, the male factor looked at, as well as just going down the route of looking at the woman when it comes to miscarriage. Yeah. Exactly. Now, the next conversation you're going to hear is a really, again, fascinating, lengthier chat with Jessica Zucker, who is a psychologist who specializes in reproductive and maternal mental health. And she's the founder of the I Had a Miscarriage campaign. And she's just released her book as well. And Kate wasn't able to join me on the chat. So Kate will be hearing it for the first time as well. But I also had mentioned to Jessica about the announcement 
that had just happened when I spoke to her from Channel 4, one of obviously the UK's biggest broadcasters who had announced its pregnancy loss policy, which is just, again, brilliant, isn't it? It is. It is. And definitely all of these things that are happening are quite exciting. And I just hope everyone else starts to make that change. I work with quite a lot of corporate organisations and I'm doing a webinar next week for a bank on the very subject. And it's all about raising awareness and the, the education piece. And then hopefully we'll start to see change. Now, in this conversation with Jessica, I specifically wanted to talk to her about life after loss. And it's what a lot of the focus of her book is about. She does talk about her own experience. We don't talk about it in detail because we always try to keep our podcasts quite short. And I wanted Jessica to talk about those other elements. So the the impact on your life after loss. But as we said at the start, for you, if you don't feel like this is the kind of thing you want to hear about, Jessica does talk about losing her baby at 16 weeks. And it was a very traumatic experience for her. So I just really, really want to highlight that for you that if if you feel in any way it might be triggering, please just don't listen. Or if you're if you're wanting to listen, please just take care and um, feel free to get in touch with us and let us know any thoughts. And we'll give you all our details at the end. So I'm really looking forward to welcoming my guest today, Jessica Zucker, who is a psychologist specialising in reproductive and maternal mental health. Jessica's the founder of the I Had a Miscarriage campaign. And last month, Jessica released her book of the same name. And that's what we're going to be talking about. So welcome, first of all, Jessica, and congrats on your book. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honoured to join you. Well, I'm really keen to talk more about uh, your book. We've we've shared our miscarriage series on the Fertility Podcast before, talking about why it happens. We've spoken to experts, uh, we've spoken to charities, specifically in the UK, who can support people better. And we're going to be signposting people to uh, all of those brilliant organisations. But we're actually speaking in a really significant week in the UK, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it because. Channel 4, which is one of our biggest broadcasters, this week announced its pregnancy loss policy, which is absolutely incredible. They've said it's the world's first. So they, they did this whole announcement on LinkedIn and, you know, for a, a public broadcaster to to highlight this as part of what they're doing, I think is amazing in terms of the conversation. And we've also had Tommy's, uh, which is our leading centre for research on miscarriage. They've been sharing some research this week. I don't know whether you've seen any of it on um, social media, but really highlighting one of the big issues we have in the UK that often women are told that unless they've had three miscarriages, then they're not going to be entitled to further investigation. And there were some really shocking stats talking about how women being left to go through three miscarriages really damaging to women's health and that they're more prone to heart disease and blood clots. And that's just the start of it. I just wondered whether you'd heard any of this and and what your thoughts were? No, I actually hadn't heard about this. I've been hearing so much about bereavement leave that came out of, you know, New Zealand and other countries being inspired to take this on as well. But no, I had not heard about this, but I, I've had strong feelings about the fact that people are not sort of deemed recurrent miscarriage until they've had at least three losses and how that affects women, of course, physically, but Uh, My focus, of course, is on their mental health and how damaging and traumatic that can be. And also in this survey, they highlighted that parents who have experienced a miscarriage are twice as likely to suffer from depression. And 
like you say, your mission, your movement is all about highlighting the importance of this. And I really want to talk about the emphasis you put in the book on life after loss, because it's such a huge impact. And I heard you also talking recently about how having a miscarriage doesn't necessarily mean you're struggling to conceive. And it's really, it's really important to have that distinction. Obviously, it's, there's, there's no taking away from the impact. And the impact is, it varies whether you've been trying or not. There's all sorts of complicated emotions that come with it. But I would like to just start talking about that impact because you yourself describe how when you went through your miscarriage, you failed to give yourself the space to fall apart. Can you start talking to me a bit about that, That's that failure to give yourself that time? Sure. Yeah. So just for a little context, I was 16 weeks along in my second pregnancy when I began to spot. There was blood. I was alarmed. I went directly to my obstetrician. Everything looked perfect. And then two days later, I had a miscarriage while I was home by myself. The baby fell out. I had to cut the umbilical cord myself and promptly began to hemorrhage. And so I give that context, of course, because the trauma was so severe. You know, having my daughter, my would be daughter in my hands, watching my body, you know, go, undergo something so tragic and so dramatic in the context of my home, you know, the, the, the level of emergency, you know, is, is something I had never really heard about before. And, and as you noted, I mean, this is what I specialize in, uh, in my practice and have done so for about 15 years at this point. So this experience, you know, really transformed my, my personal and professional life in ways that are hard to articulate sometimes. And so this kind of idea of failure to allow myself to fall apart, I only could see in retrospect, right? So my loss was on a Thursday. I assumed I would go back to work on Monday. And as I detail in the book, my sister luckily reckoned with me on this point for a while until she got me to agree to wait a week. What what was it that made you feel like, no, I've just got to carry on. I've just got to... It's so instinctive, isn't it? Well, and that's just it. So this idea of failure to allow yourself to fall apart, it's in part the animal instinct to survive. Yeah. And so survival, especially when you're postpartum, right? Because I was, you know, the adrenaline kicked in so completely that I just thought, well, let me stick to my normal life. Let me get back to the thing I love to do. Let me tend to my patients. Let me be loyal. Let me fix other people. Yeah. I mean, and I don't look at my work in terms of fixing, but I just felt like I didn't want to create concern in them. And I also, I don't think in that moment could really understand the benefit of laying around and resting and giving my body and my mind time to slow down because the truth is slowing down brings us closer to our pain. And I don't know that I wanted to be any closer to it than I already was because, you know, after giving birth at home by myself, I then went to my OB's office and underwent an unmedicated DNC because of the amount of blood loss. So the trauma went on so long, both physically and psychologically, that I think I was grasping for a sense of normalcy. Yeah. 
And so how do we know how to let ourselves fall apart? Well, my culture, I'm sure this applies to yours as well, because it seems like a global issue. We're not so good at embracing people falling apart or embracing these kinds of crises. Yeah. And so I didn't know what to do. I just did what I thought would be best. And I put one foot in front of the other. So it's this interesting thing because it's not like I have regret about it, but I just look back now and I'm like astounded that I thought I was capable of what I wasn't capable of doing. Especially as you say, it's an area that you've studied for over a decade and and have much more of an insight than most about the deep emotional toll of these types of issues in, in some respects, but then literally living it and walking that path as it's just totally taking you as far away from what you, you might have told somebody else to do, I suppose. That's right. And yeah, I mean, it really underscored for me how little I actually knew about the work I was doing. And I, it's not that I believe that psychologists have to you know, have literally walked in the shoes of a patient to understand or help them. But until I was rendered, you know, corporeally sort of in their, you know, mindset or their experience, I really, I I couldn't understand it. I really couldn't. So the the elements of your book talking about life after loss and, and the impact of it in terms of, for example, sex as a starting point, because I haven't experienced miscarriage, so I haven't got that personal connection with it. I have numerous, sadly, friends, and through the podcast, I've spoken to a lot of a lot of women who have been through it and have talked about how it's the last thing that you can think of for a significant period of time. Yet, it's something that is so important, and especially if the miscarriage has happened in terms of, of, of a fertility struggle and sex can already feel pressured, then there's even kind of more pressure on it. And I'm curious as to how you can start to regain some kind of uh, just intimacy again when you felt so traumatized by what you've, what you've experienced. Yes. And, and I think actually, you know, even some people that I've spoken with over the years who haven't felt particularly traumatized, let's say it was an earlier loss, they're sad, they're devastated, but it wasn't necessarily a traumatic unfolding. They too have challenges sometimes when returning to sex or just the idea of it. So I've interviewed a lot of people about returning to sex, uh, you know, with this idea that can grief and pleasure coexist? What does that look like? So if we're returning to the very site of the loss, what do we feel in our bodies? What do we feel in our minds as we re-engage? Now, I've also interviewed many women about returning to masturbation. So this idea that what does self-pleasure feel like in the aftermath of loss? And I've heard a lot of interesting things. You know, it's it's really spanned the spectrum of some people finding it so reconnecting and re-inspiring and reinvigorating to touch themselves, to feel themselves, to have an orgasm, to have pleasure. Whereas other people reported feeling totally 
as if they were being disloyal to the lost pregnancy, feeling, you know, body hatred, feeling alienated in the context of their skin. So it's it's fascinating and important. I feel like this is a very under-talked about aspect of life after loss that needs further investigation. And that is why I included it in the book and why, you know, I've I've written these other pieces on it because what what, what do we assume happens to women after loss, right? It's like you're bleeding for a while. Do you return to sex then? Do you return to masturbation then? Do you, how do you feel about sex, the idea of penetration, the idea of intercourse? You know, it brings with it now the possibility of getting pregnant again. And then if you do want to get pregnant again, it also then brings with it the possibility of loss again. And so sex is no longer sex for pleasure or enjoyment or whatever it started out being. And you're not able to just have that one thought that this is a pleasurable thing because the mind is so taken away to all of that other stuff. And and if you are in a relationship, then there's going to be an impact. There's going to be an impact on the other person because they've also suffered a loss, but then there's going to be that intimacy issue. And how do you how did you have those conversations or what did you learn from those conversations about that impact on on relationships? Mm. Yeah, well, I think what I discerned from, you know, hearing tons of stories in my office and in these interviews is that it's complicated. And that sort of, of course, goes without saying. Yeah. But that in many cases, women retreat. And of course, some don't. Some actually want to return to sex immediately to feel this kind of intimacy or even as a way to avoid the grief, you know, to kind of lose themselves in something pleasurable or something else. But the thing that we need to really focus on culturally is that if we talked more openly about this ubiquitous topic, more couples could be having free-flowing conversations together about this rather than this sort of retreating to different, you know, parts of the house and kind of not knowing what the other one is actually feeling. And so, you know, I think women need to take the time that they feel they need before returning to sex in whatever way that that looks, you know, whether it's to conceive again or not because it's so miscarriage is so mind body both you know it's yeah. not just like okay once i stop bleeding i can do this well you know too many women and the research shows this too many women are blaming themselves they feel a sense of guilt and shame and body failure or body hatred and we have to upend we have to turn this over we have to obliterate the fact that women are blaming themselves. And I think that's why sex is so complicated because they feel like, well, maybe I don't deserve it. Maybe something's wrong with my body. Maybe I'm not attractive. Maybe I'm not appealing anymore. And that is tragic. And that whole reprogramming can take such a lot of work, can't it? Those internal kind of messages and that that dialogue that is ongoing. It's not necessarily something that you can do alone, which is why hearing the kind of conversations that you've been sharing in the book. And am I right in saying that you spoke to men and women or is it predominantly women that have told their stories? 
It's really women in, in the office. I mean, I, I did include in the book some kind of relationship patterns or relationship issues that I've worked with in the past. But really, you know, for better or for worse, it's primarily women that comes, you know, to see me to process their losses. And did you notice any difference from an age point of view? Because I've, I've heard you talk about how sometimes if somebody has miscarried, there can be an element of relief and then there's guilt that comes with that. And maybe that's something that comes when somebody's a bit younger. But if it is a, a loss later when, you know, we're all so much more aware of, of, of the difficulties around conceiving, I, I wonder whether you, you, you saw any kind of correlation between age and how people processed it. Oh, I'm so glad you brought up this the relief point. Yeah. So actually, I mean, I've seen all ages be relieved. And why is that? Why? Because sometimes people have this sort of gut feeling or what they describe as a gut feeling that something's wrong with the pregnancy. And not that they're relieved to no longer be pregnant necessarily in that case, but they're relieved that their hunch was validated and that they weren't just anxious or they weren't quote unquote feeling crazy or something like this. And then others, and I think we, again, this is yet another sort of overly politicized part of the conversation around women's bodies and women's reproductive health. Some women are relieved because they were not intending this pregnancy and that's okay too. And they have, they have permission, at least mine, to be part of the lost community if they want to be. They are allowed to say loud and clearly, you know, I'm relieved. And maybe they'll decide in a year that they're ready to get pregnant again. And so, you know, so there, yes, the miscarriage can bring about a variety of emotions. And we assume that the primary emotion is grief and sadness. And so, I think we do better to really ask people, how do you feel? Because when we assume, then we're projecting something that actually ends up potentially alienating people and making people feel all the more isolated in whatever it is they are feeling. Yeah, because there's no one way to react. There's also no time frame in which these feelings are going to come. It may be a delay. It may be instantaneous. There's no... There's no, whilst, you know, it's amazing that you've, you've created this book of experiences to help people feel less alone. It's not a manual of how you're going to feel, is it? <laughs> I wish that there could be a manual. Yeah, yeah. It's so circuitous. It's so unpredictable. It's so day to day. And I think people do better when they know that, right? Because then you know, because you can just be going about your day doing whatever it is you're doing and be lambasted by a memory. It could come about by smelling something or the weather or the wind or, you know, just something that would never, you would never imagine could sort of catapult you back into the trauma or the moment. And we need to be able to hold that, right? So that people aren't like, pushing themselves to quote unquote, get back to who they were before loss in this timely manner. There's no time frame, And so when a lot of patients sit across from me, well, not during COVID, but they talk to me about, you know, well, it's been four weeks. Shouldn't I feel X, Y, or Z now? Shouldn't I have moved on by now? Is this unhealthy that I'm still ruminating? 
And I, I just kind of gaze at them before I answer because I want to help them sit with and think about what they just said. Why are they, why, why are we rushing ourselves? And grief is such an unknown. I mean, I had a conversation with my dad the other day because we've had a, a family grief recently and I was talking to him the other day. My parents are both, my mom in particular is a bereavement counselor and my dad works with oh. her and, you know, they have a lot of insight into it. And I, I'd phoned my parents up in in tears because it was the day that, we were, that it was the funeral for uh, the family member and they're, they're, in, they're in, in the state, so it's not something that we could attend. And I, my dad had had a similar conversation with me saying that, you know, this this time frame is unknown and the unknown element of grief is what is so challenging because you just can't predict. Because I'd kind of phoned apologizing because I was, you know, all upset, but I wanted to phone them because I knew that they would be somebody who would totally get where I was at at that point in time. Of course. And I think on that reaching out for help, because we're getting better at it in the UK, but obviously in the US, having therapy and getting support is so much more widely accepted and understood. And, you know, I work as, as, a, as a coach with people with their emotional well-being in terms of fertility, and even that is, is new. And, and I haven't, you know, done the, the level of training that, that someone like you have done, but I still have these conversations with the work I do with the podcast of people who are just starting to feel that they are entitled to have this kind of support. And I'm always saying, you know, it's, it's so essential for you to, to know that this is something for you and that you need, and it's not an indulgence. And, you know, it's, it's so vital. And I, and I, I, I do think that the shift is, especially during the pandemic, you know, the mental health conversation has been huge yes. everywhere. And I do think it's helped, but I still feel that people are reluctant to really go and ask for help. Well, that, I mean, I have to say, I, I see that here in the States as well. So, I mean, I feel like, you know, mental health and mental health struggles and disorders are stigmatized, you know, like miscarriages in the way that like somehow you're viewed as quote unquote weak if you need professional help. And it, it baffles me at this point with the amount of people struggling and with the statistics that we have around people dealing with depression, anxiety, PTSD, the suicidality uh, during COVID. This needs to be addressed and people deserve support and whether they can afford private practice or not, there's, there's clinics, at least here, where people can go for sliding scale help. And we need to normalize talking about our emotions. Yeah. And I also just want to kind of end as much as I'd love to keep talking with you, but we, we, we hinted at it before, but the inevitable is that you are probably going to try again to get pregnant. And I heard you say something so poignant when you were talking about a pregnant woman after having a miscarriage as flipping out in her body. And I just mm. thought it was so powerful. And the conversation around it all, or at least you're pregnant now, or, you know, thank goodness you're pregnant when you were talking about, I, I just thought that flipping out in their bodies was such an incredible image for people to relate to. And I'd just like to get your kind of, I suppose, thoughts on, on, on that stage, because, you know, if, if you are continuing to try, then hopefully that is, that is what happens. But I had a friend just the other day tell me that sadly she'd had a second miscarriage. She has a child. She, it's her second miscarriage since her child. And she had a, you know, she had a difficult pregnancy and she had a difficult birth and she was so nervous when she got pregnant again and then she lost it. And then 
obviously they decided to try again and I know there is so much fear around the whole thing now that I think that she's just having to totally retreat from it and it's so it's so sad to think that you know that element of what could be has now filled her with such fear yes well and she is the only one I mean, she and her partner, but really she is the only one who can decide what can I handle? And it's okay when people come upon the realization that I cannot handle more loss. I cannot endure more grief. I cannot enter into another uncertain moment or months of moments. And so I, I really respect and honor people who understand that it's enough is enough, right? So, and others feel like, you know, and I see this a lot on Instagram in the comments on posts and stuff, keep going. You know, I, I had 12 losses, but I finally got my, I think that's wonderful if the person feels really good about those decisions but I don't know that we need to be sort of cheering people on to do the same. Everybody needs to take stock of their own sort of physical health, their mental health, especially, and, you know, just their lifestyle overall. Yeah. And I think that validation that you've just given to those feelings is, is huge for so many people because you can just feel in such a fog of what you should be thinking or what you should be feeling. I mean, I look back and I'm like, what the F was I thinking yeah. getting pregnant again? I mean, because of my age, you know, we felt like it was now or never. And so I got pregnant very quickly after my 16 week loss. And I was on pins and needles that entire pregnancy. It was horrible. Mm. And so pregnancy after pregnancy loss can be so fraught. It's hard to even put words to, right? Like every time I went to the bathroom, I checked for blood. Every time, even after knowing that this baby was healthy, even at the birth when she came out, she didn't come out screaming, my healthy daughter. And I worried then. And so, you know, it's just important that we, you know, societally embrace people who are in that state because yes, people want to say, oh, at least you're pregnant now and oh, the happy ending and all this. Well, if people are walking around potentially traumatized and with so much fear and anxiety, they need support during that subsequent pregnancy. Yeah. What would you say would be the best way to ask somebody that is pregnant after loss and you know that? how they are feeling. Is it, how are you really feeling? (laughs) Yeah, either one. You could say both both things you just said, you know, how are you feeling? And then you can follow up with, how are you really feeling? Yeah. And, you know, some people do feel better or less concerned once they reach the point of the week of their loss. But those, for example, who learned at the 20-week scan something was wrong and had to terminate for medical reasons or somebody who had a full-term stillbirth, they're not going to feel better. Yeah, They're just not. No amount of information, medical information, is going to make them feel better. And especially people telling them like, 
oh, don't be stressed. That's not good for the baby. Or, oh, it's going to be better this time. It's different this time. How does anyone know? And I think that's when you have to just say, you have to just tell yourself, people just say stuff to fill the gap. It's like they feel this obligation to say something and it's not, it's almost, you just have to almost put the self-protective bubble around yourself, don't you? That's right. You really do. And you, you already are trying to do that with, you know, trying to stave off intrusive thoughts and fears all day, every day. And so I think that women deserve to be as gentle with themselves and as compassionate with themselves through these processes as possible. And I feel like that's like a radical notion to really imbue ourselves with this intense empathy after loss and or in a subsequent pregnancy when we are freaking out, when we are flipping out in the unknown. Because it takes as long as it takes. It takes it right. Yeah. And we don't know the outcome. No one can tell us the outcome. You can go to a psychic, you can go to every doctor, you can go to the fertility clinic, you can, no one can tell you. Jessica, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I know that your book is available on audiobook as well. We'll put all the links in the show notes. How was that? How was that? I mean, I work as a voiceover, so um, oh, you do? I, I, I'm curious as to how, whether you found it cathartic reading, reading the book. Oh, that's amazing that you do that. I was pretty hesitant to do it only because of COVID and the amount of output I've already, you know, mustered through this process of writing the book. I am so, so glad and gratified that I made myself do it. Oh, well Um, done. It's no small, it's no small task. I don't do audiobooks because they are so involved, but my colleagues that do, I I know how lengthy the process is. So well done to you. Yeah. I mean, I did get some coaching ahead of time to just kind of understand how to do it. But yes, I think, well, and I think especially now with my diagnosis, I'm very happy that my voice is paired with this important book. Jessica, thank you again. And we'll put all the details and it is amazing the work that you're doing and it's so honest and open. And I was so keen to talk to you to really get that insight into our minds as to how best we can try and process what is an unfathomable thing to try and process. And hopefully, as as you're saying, to normalize this conversation. So thank you. And I look forward to seeing more of what you do. And um, there's more coming. I don't doubt that for a sec. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, I, I just found that conversation with Jessica so enthralling. I didn't really want to end it, but I was very aware of, of, of the time. And I do highly recommend you check out her book. Also, follow her on Insta and all the details will be, as always, on the show notes. What did you make of the language that she used when she was just, I mean, some of the way she describes the feelings and the emotions that she's gone through, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And I know very probably relatable for, for people listening. Mm, so descriptive, so raw. You know, you can really feel that emotion when she's talking. And yeah, as you say, I think that's going to resonate with so many listeners. And I hope it's given you things to think about and to feel less maybe overwhelmed about if you are listening to this after a loss and trying to navigate your way through. Ask the expert. 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 I would like to ask Dr. James the following. So you've got a fan base, Dr. James. (laughs) If someone has had recurrent miscarriage and DNA fragmentation comes back low stroke fine, would you advise doing any further tests? On the man or in general? 
I think, well, I don't know. She, I, she hasn't gone on to say any more, so possibly just on the man. I, d- I, I don't know. No, I, do both, maybe. I, I think that I think the first thing to say is, is the vast majority of miscarriages are going to be based on egg-related issues than, than, than sperm. But in the context of male fertility, if the sperm DNA is normal, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything else. You know, then really it's just to make sure that the classic female recurrent investigations are done in terms of uterine anatomy, clotting profile, thyroid function, possibly a carrier type. So nothing else on the male side. That's really interesting what you were just saying, though, about those classic recurrent kind of investigations. Mm. And I think there's quite a knowledge piece for people missing there because people often talk about just feeling abandoned when they've had a loss and not knowing what to do next. Yeah, and, and I think for me, it's a two-sided approach to recurrent miscarriage. I think the first thing is just really making sure people don't beat themselves up because, and I may have said it on here before, you know, people not getting pregnant in any given month naturally or through IVF is the body's way of, it's the body's, way, body's quality control mechanism, making sure an abnormal embryo doesn't get you pregnant. And if you do get pregnant with an abnormal embryo, miscarriage is the second level of quality control. As horrible as it is, it's the body's way of doing the right thing. And it's, and it's important that, that women, couples, realize that and, and actually realize that actually, or as emotionally traumatic as it is, it's their body doing the right thing so they don't beat themselves up about it. Clearly, though, we want to make sure there isn't anything else going on. So at some point, it's important to, to investigate those other things. And those are the classic things, clotting, hormonal, anatomical, a couple of other, a couple of other tests like sperm DNA and genetic carrier typing that, that you can do as well, but more often than not, it's not the key factor. Ask the expert. 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 Do check out Jessica's details in the show notes. As always, you can get in touch with us. I'm at Fertility Poddy on Instagram. And I'm at Your Fertility Journey on Instagram. And you can come and talk more with us in our closed Facebook group, which is the Fertility Podcast. And if you have any questions, any concerns that you want to raise about what we've discussed in this episode, please, please do get in touch. Mm. And please do have a listen back to the miscarriage series that we will link to that we've shared previously because we know that it really did um, help a lot of you we had great feedback from it before and so we want to make sure that you know it's there it's on the fertility podcast website and like i said the links will be in the show notes thank you as always for listening and until the next time crowd network a place where you belong <laughs>